For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Sunday evening, and I'm going to try to uh, be efficient this week. Uh, today we're going to do a bio being sponsored by Ari Lichman, Ari Nesti Lichman. Uh, <coughs> In, in this chutz, as he puts a full shlema for his dad, that's Chesko and Toiba, and for myself, David Ben Yehuda, David Ben Leia, David Akoyin Leia. Thank you very much. So this is for Chesko Lechman. Uh, we're all related here. Chesko Lechman who just had an operation in Florida, and I had one here in Baltimore, and his brother is married to my sister. So figure that out. And Ari is his son. So, anyway, thanks to Mishpachas Lichman for sponsoring here. And I hope the foolish limbs, boy, do I hope the foolish limbs will come true. Uh, <clears throat> I was thinking the truth is out of blank. When Shabbos over the weekend, who can I do? And since I did Elijah Bucher, Elio Bucher, last week, so for whatever reason, my mind was kind of like stuck in the 15th century. Um, and so. I said, you know, I'm going to do the Myron Padua. And then they told me, you already did it. <laughs> I forgot. So I'll do the one before him. Uh, Rabbi Huda Mintz, who uh, is the one who made Padua Padua. He's like the Iron Cutler, you might say, of the 15th century in Italy. Here, I'll be taking it to, it to, to place and times probably, you know, nothing about. Although I did talk about Italy last week, and some of this is Nogaya. Um, our hero Buda Mintz lived out to be 100 years old, maybe even a little bit more. It's not clear by the dates, but here's somebody who lived all the way through the 1400s. He was born around 1400, 1410, whatever, and he died like 1508. So, you know, figure it out. It's a, he lived a long life. I guess the weather agreed with him. Uh, so this is Mintz, which means the family comes from Mainz, you know, in the Rhineland. And, uh, he, we're dealing with the Yekis. But as I mentioned last week, to be living in the 1400s in Germany was not push it, especially in the middle of 1400s, because Germany was consumed with anti-Semitism in the 12, 13, 1400s. The difference between them and Hitler is that, you know, they didn't go out to kill everybody, but they kicked them out of the country. Be perfectly honest, that's what Hitler wanted to do. I mean... Not excusing him, but if, let's just say, for example, uh, there are half a million Jews in Germany in 1933 when Hitler came to power. I'm just making this up. Well, let's say America did not have a quota system at that time, but it had been like before 1924. So Hitler comes to power. The government is openly anti-Semitic. The half a million Jews from from Germany run away to America, right? Or territory straw, wherever. Then Hitler says, okay, I'm done with the Jews. Now, really, 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 in his long-term plan, he would like to kill them all. But Lavdafka, during his lifetime, he had such a hushkoff, you know, he said, I can wait, it'll happen sooner or later. Uh, but meanwhile, he wanted to kick him out of Germany. Now, turned out it wasn't possible to do that, um, because the countries at that time didn't want to take in any Jews, including the U.S. And so... And then came the war, and he took over Austria and Poland and so forth. He's got millions of Jews on his hands. So he said, to heck with it, let's just kill them. So Germany had this attitude, um, minus the extermination camps. Hey, back in the uh, Middle Ages, too many Jews here, even though it was a small number. And Germany, as I've said many times, was a bunch of different states that uh, were, not, were, were part of a very loose federation. Holy Roman Empire, and this state and that state and this place and that place kicked out the Jews here or there, or sometimes they had a riot and killed them. And so our hero is a Yaki, before the term was invented, and he's born in the early 1400s, which is Mamish, the beginning of what we call the early Achrona, perhaps, or the end of Roshonim, however you want to play that. And uh, and he grows, and his father's a Talmud Chacham, and he learned by a Talmud of the Mari Weil, 
Yaakov Wall, who was one of the Gedoli Ador in Germany. So he learned up a storm. And there's going to be a rabbi in Germany somewhere. <clears throat> but then the persecution started and the expulsions. And so he leaves Germany, just like the guy we talked about last week, and moves to the nearest country. Since he's living in Bavaria in southern Germany, the nearest territory was Italy, which was not a country, but was a collection of different countries. And it was perceived that it's easier to be Jewish there than in Germany. Although Italy had plenty of anti-Semitism and had plenty of communities that didn't want any Jews involved and plenty of places that wouldn't allow the Jews in or kick them out and plenty of tainas on the Jews, you know, that they're uh, practicing the ribbis and things like that. In spite of everything I just said, the economy was of such a nature, they figured they need Jews. I don't want to go into details with loan banking and small loans and all that, pawnbroking, I'm not going to go into that. But bottom line is, there were a fair number of communities where Jews were allowed to settle. Even though the guy said, we hate you, damn you, but we need you. You understand? And every once in a while, the Catholic Church would try to knock the Jews out by creating a Christian, call it a free loan society or something like that. A Monte de Pieta, they call it. A, 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 a Karen of, of piety. But uh, somebody always stole the money and you know, it never worked out. So again and again, they had to call the Jews in, uh, even though they were hated. I remember from the Renaissance, you can see a famous painting of the Medici in Florence. They, they were kicked out and they came back in. They were allowed back in. And when they're, it's a famous painting from 1400s, I think. You see, they bring the Jews with them. Because uh, the Medici deal with high, high loans, high-end finances, but the Jews were with the low stuff. Uh, and there are many lawyers like that, that they work nickel and diming, uh, relatively speaking today in America. Uh, you know, ambulance chases, whatever the pejorative name is, you can make a living that way. It's possible. It's even possible to make a good living. So this is Italy. Now, by the time they brought in our hero, I don't know, was it 50, whatever, something like that. So he had spent a good number of years in Bavarian Germany. He's from the upper class, meaning he's a great Talmud Chacham. And so he dealt with other great Talmud Chacham. He was a classy guy, and he knew a lot in an age when there were a lot of phonies. Because the 1400s, after this period, was when they instituted the smichas to have some kind of a way of ascertaining that somebody claims to be a rabbi, they have some kind of a certification. Because there are so many liars and phonies out there the Balabatim don't know. They kiss up to them. Next thing you got a guy who's a rabbi who doesn't really know how to learn. But he really enters Jewish history <clears throat> not in the 1450s, 60s, whatever it was, when he comes to um, Italy, in the north of Italy, and he moves to Padua, where he spends the rest of his life. So I told you, he lived to be 100, <clears throat> maybe a little more. And so it means he spent a good... <coughs> 40, 50 years, a half century in Padua. Now, he was brought in because the Jewish community in Padua was like refugees and children and grandchildren refugees from Germany. And it was, they're all Yiddish-speaking. They're all handling the same kind of business. It's a new environment of Italy, but there was a lot of the old German Yiddish, Yiddish kite in it. And they wanted a rabbi like themselves. And they got a world-class guy. So, he became the Roman Padua, and under his leadership, I mean, if he was there for the rest of his life, for 40, 50 years, it means he knew how to play the game, which his son, as we shall see, did not. In order to be a rabbi, it's like Moshe Rabbeinu. To put up with the Jews is a real pain in the neck, and they're always trying to undermine you, and Lashon Hara, and factions, and this and that and the other, you know how it goes. Um... And to be able to handle and jockey all that, juggle it all, uh, you have to be a good politician. And I mean that in the best sense of the word, like a Moshe Rabbeinu type. You have to know how to handle everybody. So, first of all, he was a smart cookie, a pakeach, which doesn't automatically go with learning, but it should. Uh, so, so, so we're dealing with somebody who was an av based in, 
Yeah, he ran the basins and the kitten and the heirs, as I always say, and everything for uh, you know a lifetime. But perhaps more important, or yeah, probably more important, being a big rabbi from Germany in this community, which has a certain amount of money. So he uh, brought in the Yekesha style of the Middle Ages, in which a guy doesn't come in just to be a rabbi and you know preside over the basin and the community and all the rest of it. But he set up a yeshiva. So he's the one who made, in the second half of the 1400s, uh, he's the one who made the, a, a yeshiva, which became the yeshiva, the Lakewood, of Italy. Right? The yeshiva in Padua. And in his time, he had a big reputation. And so I'll bet you they had 100 and maybe more students. And by the standards of that time, that's gigantic. Okay, I mean you can't have a thousand all that. The the, the 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 economy can't handle that. But to have a hundred or maybe two hundred, possibly I don't know, uh, means that he had unbelievable uh, draw power, sort of like Ravarin and Lakewood. Although in Ravarin's time he didn't have so many either. But you know what I mean when I say that. And he made so notice he gave the shear there and so forth, and he organized where the boys should stay with the Balabadim. And that means that he had the community or the Richie Riches hit up to uh, you know, bankroll the yeshiva. And he had told me from all over the place. Now, first of all, I'll reiterate what I said last time. Uh, Padua is a city in, uh, in northeastern Italy. That may not mean anything to you, but just Google a map of Italy in 1494, I think. There's a map you'll see if you want to get an idea I'm talking about. Or even later, you know, 1500, map of Italy in the 1500, 1600s, so forth. And you'll see there's no country called Italy like you have today that came in the 1800s. Before that, it was a collection of different states. And Padua, early in the 1400s, was conquered by the Venetians, by Venice. But the Venetians ruled so well that there was no attempt to change the government. So Venice, as you know, is a city on the water. I believe most people listening to the podcast know that. Venice is a city on the water, on the water. Um, but Venice, long ago, became rich from trade and used the money to fund an army and a navy, which means they got mercenaries and stuff like that. And they used these mercenary armies, which had Venetian officers, to conquer the Carca near Venice, the idea being, it should be a buffer zone. Nobody should come and attack us. So, if I'm the head of Venice, which is sitting in the water, I would really like it if I controlled the territory across the water, on the terra firma, as they call it. Five miles, ten miles, twenty miles. I'll do whatever I can. <clears throat> and so the Venetians, the Venice, uh, launched military wars, which actually succeeded in taking over a lot of territory <clears throat> in that part of Italy, which was therefore run by the government of Venice, so you can call it the Venice Empire, or the Veneto, or the Republic of Venice. And as I've said many times, a fair number of Jews lived in these places because most of the time, Venice was very clever in their politicians and in their wars, and they usually arranged it not to be on the wrong side of a war, therefore not to be physically invaded. And if you're a civilian, especially a Jew, you'd like to be as much as possible in a country which is not physically invaded, okay? So our hero, therefore, became the Rav in uh, in the 1400s. It's a long time ago in Padua. And the yeshiva he made uh, turned Padua, which is a beautiful city. I was there once. Very gaish, of course, but a very beautiful city. Uh, you know, with a million statues. More statues than, uh, than uh, Tarok's house, you know. And... Uh, and fancy schmancy churches and so on and so forth. Now, um, you know, the Renaissance art, but uh, uh, that's fine. Uh, the Jews made it under his leadership, Rabbi Mintz, that uh, it should become a place with lots of uh, Shiva Bachram, as we would call them today. First of all, from all over the Republic of Venice. See, we get boys from, from um, uh, local, you know, from Padua and from Venice itself, 
wasn't a large Jewish community there, but there was a Jewish community um, from other territories. You know, I mean, you know, these. You look at a map, and you'll get the idea what I'm talking about. You know, from Verona and from places like that, that uh, Rovigo uh, that belong to Venice. So it's sort of like me saying, my yeshiva gets kids uh, from all over the state of New York. You know, something like that. In addition to that, from other parts of the Venetian Empire, because Venice in the 1400s was Patokfum. That was their golden era when um, the Venetian Navy, although they used the funny ships with the oars, you know, like a Ben-Hur, they built themselves quite an empire in the Mediterranean. They controlled a big part of Greece. They owned Crete and uh, Cyprus and places like that. And there was a fair number of Jews in Crete, Candy, as they used to call it, and uh, they would send their boys to Padua to the yeshiva. It's the same country; it's all in part of Venice, and also Michutz la Venice from other parts of Italy and from Germany, because you're going to Padua, you're learning why by one of the right? It's not that far away from Germany and place like that, and the political situation was, by the standards of that time, good. Good. So, I mean, there was not a ghetto. Um, There was a Jewish neighbor, but there wasn't a ghetto. The economy was fairly okay. Um, Jews were able to operate within the confines of the economy. I don't know how. There were a lot of laws against Jewish participation in the economy, but I know from history that there were a fair number of rich Jews in, uh, in Padua. And therefore, if you combine the two together, must have been an interesting place in the 1400s, 1460s, 1470s, 1480s, 1490s, and so forth. So uh, he's a guy who, who made a, a, a big deal out of Ishtelar and uh, turned, Ven- um, turned excuse me, Padua, I would say, into probably the main headquarters of Lumdus in Italy. And really, it's, it, now there were others. There was in Mantua, you know, there were others in Bologna. But Padua was number one, and they had the most guys. And I remember that, you know, all these people came from different places, had to pick up Yiddish. Like, in my time, in the beginning of Mary Israel, you know, that changed pretty quickly. But, uh, you know, if you wanted to understand the Shir and all the rest of it, because I repeat, these are Jews living in Italy, but they're, they're Ashkenazic Jews. So it's Yiddish. Um, now, I don't want to sugarcoat it, because he attracted a smart group of Bahram, so you're going to have a lot of ambitious types. And as we shall see later in his life, when he was old, I mean old, old, you had the very typical thing that happens in yeshivas over and over again in Jewish history. It happened in Velazhim, for example, which is the head guy wants to leave his son as his successor as Rosh Hashiva. That's just natural. Moshe Rabbeinu wanted that. It's just natural. You, you say, I guess, I built up the yeshiva. I put my kohus into it, so I want my kids to inherit it. As opposed to the Bukram who say, this guy's better than your son, and that guy's this, and that guy. So there was a lot of politics involved, and bitter politics towards the end of his life from the succession struggle, shall we say. But that is not atypical, the opposite. It's, it's extremely typical. I mean, you have this in the Gemara time. So, you know, he wasn't spared that. Now, in addition to being the Rav of the city and uh, the Jewish community city and a Rosh Hashiva, which means he's giving shiur and bechinas all the time, in addition to all that, he was, his reputation spread and he got shadows and shoes from all over the world. Or all over Europe, let's put it that way. And maybe beyond Europe. Uh, he was a big deal. And for some reason, the Italian Jews in the 1400s and 1500s, and maybe even 1600s, are famous for huge machlokuses that used to break out in the Shalson and was elsewhere over certain issues. And they really got personal, and people cussed each other out, and put them in Cheyram. I mean, it was quite a time. I'm not sure exactly why Davka here, more than anywhere else, but proportionally speaking, the Jewish communities were very small, tiny, but the machlokus was not. <laughs> okay? And, uh, just got to get used to it. And you read about rabbinic history in 1415, 16, 1700s in Italy, 
There's always going to be ugly fights. It's, it's, it's just how it goes. Uh, sometimes fights between between the rabbi and the Balabatim, especially the Ritchie Ridges, and sometimes fights between the rabbis themselves. So that certainly happened to Rabbi Mintz. He probably wrote a ton of chuvis because you can see the few that survived that he was looked on as as a post they got one of the posts at door, which of course he was. And uh I'll just tell you right now, uh the his writings had bad mazel because um how should I put this? <clears throat> These were tumultuous times in Italy particularly, because as I said, just Google a map of Italy in fourteen nineties and you'll see that it's a bunch of different states. So you got the Republic of Venice and next to that is the Duchy of Milan, and next to that was uh, Piedmont, and below that is the Papal States, and there's the Grand Duchy of Tuscany, Kohena Kohena. And the European powers, like the French, the Spanish, the Germans, each one had claims or invented claims to be able to rule different territories. And uh, they tried. This is all very famous, basic part of European history. I don't want to bore you. You're starting with the invasion in in the 1497 by Charles the Seventh, was it, or the Eighth of uh, France, and so on and so forth. You know, he allied himself with uh, the the Pope, uh, the Borgia Pope against the other. Well, it's it's a it's a very complicated story. Suffice it to say, everybody's fighting everybody, but being that this is Italy, no two people, no two countries end up on the same side that they started the war with. You know what I'm saying? If the war starts with A and B versus C and D, again, if the war starts with A and B plus C and D, by the time it's over, it's going to be A and D versus B and C, and they may even switch back and forth. And you think I'm kidding, but the reason I'm mentioning this is that Venice was one of the world powers, believe it or not, um, because of the mercenary armies and mercenary navies. Read, but even though Venice is a city, uh, read, um, what's his name? De Barbino, who lived at this time. And he, read De Barbino when he talks about um, if it's good to have a king or not. You know, that's one of the six and 13 myths, that Al-Khatkila B'Dyevin. And he says the kingdoms don't do well, but the republics like Venice do very well. You see? The republics like Venice do very well. So Venice was a power, and uh, suffice it to say, that time the Pope was Julius II, who is the guy from the Michelangelo movie. He was a warrior, uh, a general, Pope. He was an no, he was an army commander as well as the Pope, and he wanted to. Uh, he had it out for Venice, and he allied himself with the Germans, the Austrians, and the uh, the Germans, the French, and the Spanish. Maximilian, the Holy Roman Emperor, Louis XII of France, and Ferdinand of Aragon, and to go off and wipe out Venice. It reminds you a little bit like the war against Moab that was fought by uh, Yisrael, Yehuda, and and um, Edom. <clears throat> so, without going through all the details, this is called the League of Cambrai, and our hero lived to be over 100. <laughs> and you can imagine how much Torah literature he had, meaning in his house, um, unpublished material, just the Shalos and Shuvas. Because in those days, you get Shalos, guy like him get, gets questions, written questions from all over the world, from Chasher Rabbanim, and the right answers, and keep and make copies. So in his house, must have had like a velt of stuff, and he died in 1508. In 1509, okay, this came this invasion of uh, the, the French and the Germans and the others, who successfully invaded Venice and got to the one-yard line. Notice they invaded the country and got up to Venice. They didn't get into Venice itself, but they got up to Venice. And then the Pope switched sides, and then the dancing began, as I said. Uh, so they did capture Padua. And when they did, like I mentioned last week, they sacked the city, and they certainly went to the Jewish neighborhood. And just because they were Mamzerim, they burned and they looted and they pillaged and junk like that. And they found all these papers uh, from this dead rabbi, and they burned them, torn to bits. So it's a it's a real shame. Uh, 
as a result, we don't have many of the Shalas and Shubas, probably thousands, I'm very serious, from somebody who was a Roman Rosh Hashiva and a leading world figure for 50 years. Just think about that. Very active. And so, instead, uh, what happened was, like, uh, 20, 30 years later, his grandson-in-law, the guy he married, uh, his, his granddaughter, and as we're talking about Rabbi Yehuda Mintz of Padua, and who married his granddaughter? Uh, the best guy in the yeshiva at that time, that's what we call Maram Padua, who I spoke about, or Mayor, Mayor Katzenelenboga. And later years, the Maram Padua, who also was a very big cheese, without question, same thing. You know, he was Rosh Hashiva, and he was Dabezdin. He was like a repeat of Mari Mintz. Um, so he published, he put together a collection of his own Shalas and Shubas. He published them in, in printing press. Because you see, these guys lived in the Republic of Venice. And maybe you're aware, Venice itself was a place where he published all the Hebrew books. The, the Shas, the Mikras Gadolos, and all the other stuff that I mentioned last week with uh, Elio Bacher. So... If you had stuff, you could actually get it published. It's not too far away from, from Padua to Venice. Uh, so he wanted to publish, and he did publish his own Shalas and Chubas. That's what we have today. Shalas and Chubas, Maram uh, Padua. But the Maram Padua himself says that it was a terrible tragedy that all the writings of my <coughs> illustrious wife's grandfather were lost to all these Geisha soldiers. But a little bit remains. I'm putting out the little bit. So whenever you see an edition of the Chubas Maram Padua, you look closely, and you'll see it's Chubas Mari Mintz and Chubas Maram Padua. He has 16 surviving uh, um, Chubas from uh, the, our hero, Yehuda Mintz. And so the grandson, the daughter's granddaughter's husband, was nice enough to put him out. That gives a tiny bit of an idea of who he was. Now I want you to know, this is just interesting, that... You know, it was published long ago in the chicken scratch print in the 1500s and so on and so forth. And maybe it was reprinted, recopied once or twice. And that's all I used to know happened. I had somewhere in my house, you know, you used to buy for a, a buck or two these old chicken scratch uh, farm. Uh, you know, and the and was also in the Myron Padua and all the rest of it. But it's, it's not fun to read it. Um, I was not aware uh, that there was another edition. When I, uh, when uh, a friend of ours from my show, uh, Azriel Rosenfeld, who was a very great Talmud and a very big scientist, big scientist, mathematician, when he passed away, so I went, his wife is a friend of mine, uh, to his house. He had a gigantic library. Uh, unbelievable. Uh, makes mine look like a, a, a mouse. And quality, too, quality. And I saw something I didn't know existed, which was a wonderful deluxe edition of the uh, Chubis Myron Padua, the Chubis Myron Mintz, our hero Myron Mintz, from Professor Ziv, uh, Rabbi Ziv from uh, New York, who used to teach Jewish history in YU, who specialized in the 1500s. And perhaps you're familiar, if you've seen with his edition of the Chubis um, Harama and the Sheres Yosef, but the Ramah is much more famous with very heavy footnotes. I mean, he did this before the art scroll existed and before the others started to do so. It was just his shtick. Probably this was his scholarly work at YU. He taught at YU for a long time. And um, he had a shul somewhere in the Bronx, whatever. And uh, it's the way a saver should be done. Now, he's got the right lumdisha footnotes and the right historical footnotes. And it's uh, all organized. It's not Manuka, but it's everything but. It's organized very nicely with the good print and all the rest of it. And Pisuk is a pleasure to read. So I was like shocked when I saw it, and she was nice enough to give it to me. So um, I understand the Zichr and Arm probably put it out, but they're going to, they didn't, I'm sure they did nothing but just reprint what Professor Ziv did because you can't do better than he did. So if I'm just telling you all this, that if you're interested at all in what I'm talking about today, uh, and you want to know about all the Shalas and Chubas from this great man, sadly or unsadly, there are 16 left. And these were published back in the 1500s. And they're very fascinating. I mean, all these guys are fascinating in the 1500s in Italy, or 1500s in general. 
And I myself, I'm looking at the Mavtech, and it's only 16 different things. And I highlighted a few that caught my attention. Uh, for example, uh, and remember, he got questions from everywhere. And if he had a yeshiva for 40 years or more, he, his students became Rabbanim everywhere. You know what I'm talking about. And so, uh, plus other Gedolim wrote to him, agreed, disagreed, and things like that. And uh, I see over number seven from Travis, where this is interesting. He has three questions from a shul. One question is, and every rabbi will recognize this, they're trying to build a shul in a certain town. And one faction of the Balabatim is like this. Oh no, since you're not building it the way we want it, we're not going to kick in money. Yet, which is, in other words, an excuse to be tightwise and not, and, and not contribute. Are they allowed to do that? And same thing with the mikvah. And then he has Achnos Zarkim, Shaparnos, and Yotzia Patakim, Kemig Archim Lolavaisham. This, to my mind, is very interesting from the history point of view. Just to give you a, a tiny, tiny slice of life from the old days, used to have uh, beggars. And poor people passed through the town. One part of Jewish life that was there in the old days was, like I say, Jewish beggars. Today, you don't see it much. What you see is mashalachim, which is a different thing. <clears throat> people coming maybe from Israel to raise money for a, a wedding or something like that. <laughs> I'm talking about people didn't have what to eat. And you come to a town uh, and Jewish community, and for Shabbos especially, they have what they call a billet system. And that means, let's say for argument's sake, there are 30 balabatim in the town, right, in the Jewish community, or 40, whatever. Uh, so each guy has to take in an irach. You know, a poor person or, or passing through or somebody like that, whether he smells or not. And who decides which irach goes to which place? Because if you leave it up to the balabatim, Everybody will want the same two people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Nobody wants this loser and that. Everybody wants that winner. Uh, and so, in this town, that you're supposed to, you, it was potluck. They had a whole bunch of names of Balabatim in there. And you stuck your hand in, in a box, like in a, in a raffle. And you pulled out a name, and that's whose house you go to. And apparently it must have been um, embarrassing for the Ani, for the poor person himself, to stick his hand in and pull somebody out. Because then, you know, let's say I was the poor guy. And let's say you, let's say your name is Schwartz. You're the person I get. So then I have to go over to you and say, "Uh, I got your ticket. You know, I got your name in the lottery. And then you go, oh my God, what a loser. And and the idea is, this system will publicly embarrass the uh, the poor guy. And good, so he won't come to this town anymore. Like we say today, this Meshach has been here three times in a week. Get him out of here. Okay? And our hero says, this, uh, and those in the community who oppose this, call Kai Gavna Lo Mikri Right? There's a mitzvah called Hachnozazarchim. You take poor people in, not you kick them out. Right? And Lolavayashanim. So he said, keep up the old way and let the Parnas. Now, Parnas means that there was an official in the community, and his job is to parcel out who goes where. So that's a different thing altogether. Uh, if I'm the Parnas, of the uh, of the petex, so let's say there are ten beggars here, or something like passing through Shabbos, and as I said before, let's say there's thirty or forty balabatim, so I am in charge of that, and I go over to the poor guy after I pulled out the name. I said, "You're going to this in this guy's house. You're going that in that guy's house." And that way, the poor guy says to the rich person he's assigned to, "I don't know. They told me to go with you." You see, uh, he's got another one over here in Cher Ragma Mitzvah. Can you have two wives? Um, if if you if, if, by Ashkenazim, if uh, there no if the first wife is childless, and the guy, and he had it against this guy Hamuchram Bonifatso, <laughs> some rabbi named Bonifatso, who said you can do it, and he's writing 
to uh, the Mizrahi, you know, Elia Mizrahi in Constantinople, you can't do it, and so on and so forth. Aldar Kedushin Shalan Nusim, Hathnein Basulim. Very interesting. He has a lot of questions with Anusim. Remember, he's born in early 1400s and he dies in 1508. That means he was the rabbi and the Rosh Hashiva of Padua in 1492. So when Jews were kicked out as they were from Spain, one of the places somebody might end up going is running away from Spain and going to Venice to, to Padua. Maybe a Spanish boy is going to go and learn in Ashkenazi Yeshiva there. Such things could happen. Like today, you know, a Moroccan guy goes to Lakewood, you know, back in the 50s or whatever. It could happen. You see? And um, and therefore, they used to send him this Friday Museum, these Shilas of Kedushi Shalanusim, Shalafnanim Sulim. And, you know, do, let's put it this way. This is a classic Murano question, which goes like this. Uh, me and this girl were, were Muranos. I'm Jewish and she's Jewish. We got married in a Catholic seminary back in Spain. The Adim were, I don't know, Adim Psulim. Uh, now that we both escaped from Spain, or maybe, or maybe the wife escaped and the husband's back there, so she'll never get a get from him. Do I have to worry about the marriage ceremony that was performed back in Spain if you have Adim Psulim? Uh, here's another one. Isha Shinoflo of Nayava Mummer. Again, a very classic problem in the 1400s, which was what's called the Kalitsis Mummer. You know, um, a guy gets married, he dies without children, The he had a brother. Between the time of the marriage and the time of the death, the brother converted and became a guy. Uh, what does she do for the Kalitsa? And he won't give her, a, he won't do Kalitsa with her. What do you do? Uh, you tell us stay in a gunna for the rest of your life or not? It's a major thing going back to the Gonim and Rashi and everything like this. He has a very long teshuva on the subject, which actually is very interesting, very thorough. And he says, usually I don't write it such great lengths, but since I have a, a chiddish dick approach over here, a lenient, a lenient approach, so I wanted to explain at great length. Then he has Mion Kitana, uh, one of the great fights in Jewish history. Uh, with Jakob Pollock, uh, the famous Jakob Pollock, who, who's supposed to have started the, the Pilpel in Poland. In other words, Jakob Pollock was a great Ashkenazi rabbi, and he was in Prague, and he was like a very hot Rosh Hashiva, very hot. And Prague was a Jewish center, and he had a hot Yeshiva there. And I mean, you know, they were. Uh, learning of a storm, and were screaming at each other and learning, you know, the Lumdus was at a very intense level of the old school, of the Pilpul and the Chalukim, as they call it, uh, from one long ago. I don't want to go through it now again, you know, all the screaming and everything, but uh, I've done it in the past. Uh, I've tried to explain that. So, it's very famous that he got himself in the hot water because the question in the 1400s that was a hot button item, was mune, which you know from the Gemara means that under certain circumstances, under certain circumstances, if you have a young girl, Katana, under the age of 12, who was married off by a mother, no, her father died, and married off by a mother to somebody, does she need to get if she wants out? After all, the girl's five or six years old. Uh, who says by the time she's 12, she wants to stay with the guy? Chances are not. On the other hand, it could be a scandal. So there was a famous case in Prague of his sister-in-law, his wife's sister, and I guess her father must have died young, and they married her off under 12 to some guy, a Tom I mean, it's a movie, but that's a miniseries, I always say. And by the time she's 12, she says, I don't want this guy, this loser. And he was all angry. And she was Mima Ennis. And I can only assume that he wouldn't give her a get. And so her brother-in-law, Yaakov Pollock, who was one of the Gedoliador, he says, well, you can do me. You don't need a get. And even was a Masada Kedushin with another guy. So 
I got no problem with that, me, myself, and I. But in the 1400s, the Ashkenazim were wrestling with what he can do to it all nowadays. And there's a famous sheet of a big rabbi you never heard of in early Germany in the 1400s. And he said, you can't do me in nowadays. And all the other rabbonim in Germany and in Italy and elsewhere agreed with him. We don't do me in nowadays. So you have to somehow or other try to figure out how to get a get or something like that. But Jakob Pollock said, no, I'm right. And and what she can go ahead and marry God. I'll say it again. He was Masada Kedushan for his sister-in-law with a second husband, which means he had big places, you know. He says, I I I stand by my own sock. Uh so all hell broke loose. Now by the way, this happened in 1492, the year the Spanish kicked out the Jews. Had nothing to do with that. <clears throat> but if you think the Jewish world <coughs> in 1492 was thinking about Spain, of course they were. But they're also very heavily engaged in the question of Miun, Miun Kitana. And uh, uh, and there were several phases of this. There were whole articles, whole literature on this business. Um, and Jakob Hall would not back down. And he and it got so hot he had to leave Prague. And he went to Krakow, uh, where he opened even a bigger yeshiva, and even hotter learning and Chalukim. And the other rabbis doubled down on attacking and putting him in Cherem. And one of the leaders of the anti-Yakopalic movement was Rabita Mintz, who was an old man, a Zuckin, among the postkin. And he said, you want to get rid of the Cherem, you have to go to the grave of the rabbi you disagreed with or something, asked Mechil or whatever. And he wasn't going to do that. And so um, he, he, he put him in Cherem. Imagine today if a reputable rabbi would would put Ramosha Feinstein in Kherim, something like that. It's 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 weird, you see? I told you before, Italy, 14, 1500s, they have weird stuff going on over there. Because today you'd say like this, listen, the guy's a posek himself, it's his own sister in law, you know, if he's wrong, it's their mom's heiress. Uh and give him the full faith and credit, like we say today. You know, if if he's poskening, so he doesn't hold like this, uh, you know, a uh, uh, Marksburg, whoever it was, that say you don't do me in nowadays. He said you do do me in nowadays, but they took the idea if you're like breaching the wall and breaching the consensus when something has to do with issues, you're doing like a terrible sin, and my goodness, and uh, therefore, if you're ever interested, I'm sure those of you who, who will learn about me and, and the Dafyomi, if they have like the raid bites and all this, they always bring this story in. So here you have it, number 13, Mi and Katana, the Gon Ramnachem Marsburg, Osar Bismanenu, Begisa Yakapalak Hitter. So, and he's blasting Yakapalak. Now, by the way, Yakapalak got back at him because when he died, his son took over, as we shall see. And there was some kind of case, and I've never gotten this exactly. I read it years ago. Professor Marx had a whole article on it in an old book, Alexander Marx where something was ribbis, and I think he donned somebody, something like that, and Yaakov Paul quitted the son in Cherem. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? But the son in Cherem. So, uh, it's pretty bad. Well, and, and incidentally, I remember Marx had the original documents, so these guys really cussed each other out in very vulgar language in the basin. You're a piece of this, I hear a shtick of that. I'm serious. You know, in Italian and Yiddish, all the rest are pretty shocking. Okay? But you know, when, when people get hot in politics, they, they forget everything. Everything goes out the window. Uh, so, you see, he has very interesting tubas. The last one, the last one in the book, is the one that's perhaps going to be of greater interest at this time of the year. It's one of the reasons I decided to do Mari Mintz, and that's his famous teshuva on cross-dressing on Purim, which is mentioned in the Shulchan Aruch, because the Shulchan Aruch is the Ramah, and the Ramah was a big admirer of his, of uh, Mari Mintz, and follows him in a lot of areas, uh, even when others don't. And he says, mm-hmm. And he has over here, now remember, this is Mari Mintz, who's the Av Bezin Padua, the Rosh Shiva of the Shiva in Padua, Mr. Halacha Posek 
you know, Shalom Jews all over the world. And he's getting questions, what's with the cross-dressing on Purim, that the men will wear women's clothes and vice versa. You're putting on masks. You know, this is Italy now, right? And he says over here, uh, which obviously was a hot item, and I can understand it. And he says, uh, already Paskin on this, uh, Rabbi El Yoakam Siegel, and he published a whole contrast, and he's right. And anybody who challenges him, any frummy who says that he's wrong, and it's usher to do this, is also, you know, it's like he's questioning God. So here you have a classic Ashkenazic uh, Psach Halacha based on the idea if the freer digger did it, you can't question it. Now, mind you, the question over here is, is this allowed? Not that you have to do it. It's totally fine for somebody to say, I don't feel comfortable in my community, in my family. People should go cross-dressing, you know, especially now in modern America, you know, the less said, the better. <laughs> but uh, uh, but nevertheless, he says, I don't... The, the, the guy who gave the answer doesn't mean, need my help. But still, I want to say this. And here you have a classic um, Ashkenazic statement. Bossy little schar, shave miksura. I want to have the schar of holding up the, the beam a little bit. The Gemara says, you know, I'll paskin this if others support me. So he says, I'm, I'm coming to support. The mitzvah, leaking tam lahavi raya, it's, it's a mitzvah to come up with Talmudic arguments and rayas. To permit this Purim custom, right? Ma Because I saw the Gedolim back in Germany when I was growing up, and they were okay with it. And these were great people. And like I said before, if Ramosha finds say you can do it, don't tell me you can't do it. It's that kind of attitude. You know, the true Masatesha and Mariwal, whoever it is. Asheru Benemu Venosem, Chasenem Kalosem, Loshin Osam Partsufim. He says, I saw Gedoliolam, my Rebbeim, back in, in Germany, in Bavaria, who were Hasidi Elyon, and so forth. And their families did it on Purim, right? On Purim. You know, so the, you know, the men and the women switched clothes, and they wore masks, and all those other kind of Purim shtick, as we call today. Okay, if there really was something also to it, then it's the people I knew in Germany, the Gedolim that I grew up with, my Rebbeim, as we'd say today, would not shut up for, you know, because politically correct. They would not, never tolerate a deviation from the din if it was Takasar. And if a great Gedolim like this were okay with this, on Purim, not any other time, then shut up. Right? Elevate Hoylem Rayu Smach. And he says, He says, I'm saying this against that Palgod, the Balmachlokis, and the Tzeduki. Now, the, the Frumi is called the Tzeduki by him. Why? Because to him, questioning the actions of Freer Dika Gedolim is worse than the sin itself. Palgod Tzeduki Umuchram Gershom Bonifatso. So it's very interesting, because nowadays, some people say like this, you can always be more from than they used to, you know, years ago people weren't so religious. And here's the other way around. I knew if my rebellion were okay with this, then 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 you have no grounds for saying it's us Okay? And he goes on, he has all arichas here, from the Gemara in, 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 in Avodah Zorah, and al peace for as you know, he says it's only us only somebody who's cross-dressing like you talk have now, you know, trans, uh, whatever, uh, trans things where, you know, people's really dressing up like that because they want to look like a woman or a woman looks look like a guy. Not the Purim shtick, okay? So, as you know, this tuba may have been um, controversial or not, but it was like getting a hector from Ron Cutler because he was... He was at that level in, in Italy. 
and um, what he called, and he would be, you know, the had enough of an effect that you know that the, the Ramah put into the Shulchan Aruch. Okay, I think you know what I'm talking about, right? Here it is. I just pulled out my rusty, trusty Shulchan Aruch. You look at the end of Orchaim and Tov, Reish Tzadi Vav. At the end, Ches, it says, Mutter Lisa Yishu B'Purim, that's a Mechaber. And then Ramah says, Ma'ash Anogu Lulbush Partsufim B'Purim, Ramah, V'gever Lovish Simla Sisho, B'Yishu Klomiz Bege, and they cross-dressing, Ain't Yisr B'Dabar. Me'achar She'ain Mechavdin Al-Lesemcha B'Yalmo, V'chein B'Lovishus Klaim D'Rabonan. Okay? V'yesh Omrim D'Asar, like he just said, you had this uh, Rabbi Gershon Badafatso. I will hamina kisvar rishona, but the minik follows um, him. And if you look at the bottom, at the end, it says Chubas Mari Mints Semitas Zion. So I that's I thought it was an int- that's actually what reminded me to do the Mari Mints or Buna Mints uh, today, which is not too long before Purim. As you see, therefore he was a big person, not well known at all today. Uh, unless you happen to get a hold of this. And I don't think most people... Well, I think the Zichron Aaron now published, if I'm not mistaken, this the new Maran Padua, which is like a reprint of Ziv. If he did, then it's very good. I re- Like I said, I recommend it highly. Uh, and it's very easy to read and all the rest of it. And you see that he has very interesting cases in Shilas uh, of an authoritative nature. Now, he probably had 1,600 of them. Or sixteen thousand, I don't know, because he lived for decades and decades as a posseg, but it was destroyed by the uh, the German and the uh, and the French armies in uh, in fifteen o nine. And as a matter of fact, there's a famous sad story that um, what do you call it? That uh, he was buried. You know, he he died in fifteen o eight, just before the Holocaust, so to speak. And five days later, they say the Abar ben Al died there. He was also in Padua. And they were buried side by side. And then the, the, the Gaisha soldiers destroyed the cemetery. And, you know, they, they, you know, they, they don't have, not only did they burn the stuff, they, they destroyed his kever. So I think I saw online somewhere that, you know, the Italian Jewish community put up like a monument where it used to be or something like that, where Barbanel is buried. Now, when I was in Venice, I'm a coin, so I don't go. They told me some people wanted to go to the graveyard, and they say you can see the Barbanel there. Barbanel's not buried in Venice, but maybe they took some stuff and, and transferred it to Venice. I don't remember exactly how all that goes. But it's a real, you know, it's a tragic business. He wanted the yeshiva to go to his son, uh, but he died in 1508. There already was a lot of uh, civil war in the yeshiva, uh, same thing happened in the Tziv, by the way, you know, uh, over whether the son should take over of Avram Mintz. Uh, within a few months after the death of the father, the whole thing was, uh, was uh, you know, a moot question because the city was sacked and all the Jews had to run away. And he ran to Ferrara, I remember, then he went to Venice, the son. And by the time he was people, he had gotten arguments with people. No, he didn't have a great ending. And they didn't want him back in, in Padua. So even though your father was Ryan Cutler, they don't want the son. And uh, he had, But he you know, he moved to Mantua, which is not that far away, but was in the Dutch in Milan, and that's where he was the rabbi. Uh, if I remember correctly, so, uh, so Jakob Pollock put him into Therum over some sock case he did. And... Uh, and he was screaming that it's not true. And they say, the famous story, I don't know if it's a legend or not, that he and Jakob Pog died on the same day in 1541. So in other words, everybody put everybody else in the harem and they all worked. <laughs> you know, all the clothes worked. Now, um, that's a sign of the fact that in the era of these rabbinical, you know, communities, uh, one guy could just... Uh, Notice they shot harems out a lot of times, right and left. And, uh, you know, this is one of the reasons the harems don't mean too much because it was inflation of the harems. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're, it's a sad ending. Now, wait a minute. You're going to say like this. So what a shame 
the guy spent decades building up a big yeshiva and a successful yeshiva. And then because of this bad stuff, the guy died and then the enemy destroyed the parts of the city and the son was kicked out. Well, the son's son-in-law. So those Yehuda, our hero is Yehuda Mintz. His son was Avram Mintz. Avram Mintz had a daughter who married what we call Myron Padua, Mary Katzenelboga. So notice he married the daughter. So she married the best guy in yeshiva. Get what I'm saying? Okay, that's a different story. In other words, he was a Russian, the, the, the son-in-law of Avram Mintz. But on the other hand, everybody knew he is, happens to be the best guy in yeshiva. You see? So it wasn't that much resentment. So I should have gotten a job. And he became the Myron Padua and he repeated the grandfather. He, Myron Padua was there was also about 40 years, something like that. And he was able to put the yeshiva back together. And same thing happened. It flourished. So the golden years of the uh, yeshiva in Padua was uh, under the Mari Mintz and then under Myron Padua. Now, there were others after them, there were, but these were the really hot years. And people from all over the world, or Europe at least, and Mediterranean, one of the places they would go to to learn was uh, was in Padua, which is kind of funny. Uh, later, the yeshiva afterwards continued into the 1600s and 1700s. They never had the same golden age. I mean, they were it was a fine yeshiva, you know what I mean? And many of the Gedolim of Italy learned there. And it was a fine place. I want to knock it. But it wasn't like the cutting edge, super hot, as it had been under our hero and under the, the husband of his granddaughter, under Mari Mintz, and then under Myron Padua. That's when it was like one of the main places in the world. Uh, and the Ramah was in constant communication with the Myron Padua, for example, and things like that. Then they really, really were at the top of the game. Uh, and what happened was that in the 1500s, they redid the University of Padua. And part of that process of the redoing of the university was that they allowed the Jew to go for an MD degree. So it's, <laughs> it's kind of like a yeshiva that has college. So people come to learn that yeshiva partially for the yeshiva, partially for college. You understand? Uh, as a Baltimorean, I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> but they have yeshiva and and college. And that's uh, one of the features of the yeshiva Padua afterwards in the 1600s and the 1700s. Now again, they turned out many gadolim. They did. But lots and lots of them, and most of them, also ended up going to college which was a block or two away from the yeshiva. I myself was in Padua, as I saw it, two blocks away from the university. So imagine today, I don't, I'm don't. i not familiar, I cannot think offhand of an important yeshiva in the U.S., which is a block or two or three away from a big college, like a big university. Um, I, you know, I, it doesn't come to my mind. Uh, so it's, it's, it had a peculiar, you know, uh, history in this regard. Uh so these guys were the original term derechers or whatever you want to call it, but it, that was not the case in the time of our hero. Now I do want to say one last thing. There's a famous legend, I think it's a legend, and that is, I mean I'm pretty sure it is, but there was a, a rabbi I forget who was it the Shalshalz Gabala, Mordechai Grundy. Hold on for a second. Yeah, I had to switch something. I'm waiting for my doctor to come in in a minute. Um, there's a very famous story about our hero, the Mari Mintz, Mintz, which goes like this. Uh, he had a PhD. He taught as a professor in the University of Padua. He had a lot of Galicia students. They held from him a belt. And they even uh, painted his portrait and put up with the other professors in the university. And it was there for hundreds of years. Um, this entered a lot of old, uh, old Jewish history books. And uh, it's, <laughs> but if you follow what I said tonight, you realize it's a bunch of baloney, to put it mildly. That ain't the profile of our hero. He was a Bavarian, Ashkenazic, 
yeshivish rabbi who ended up, by circumstances, running away and settling in Padua. He didn't go to college and he <laughs> studied philosophy all the rest. That's not who he was. Okay? It's just not who he was. I'm not saying that he, uh, you know, was anti-college or pro-college, but the type of person I'm talking about was, was, is, not, is not pro-college, let's put it that way. I don't think he would be, you know, ostering somebody or whatever, or putting him in harem for doing it. But um, he was not a college-type guy, Taramata, and that kind of business. I'm pretty sure, and others also, that this was a mistake conflating him with one of his contemporaries who lived in Padua and with whom the Mari Mint had big fights. And that's Elio Del Medigo. I think I did him, maybe. I believe. I can't remember. Wrote the Bechina Sadas. And he was a big Talmud Chacham from Crete who lived in Padua. And he did have a PhD or that sort of thing. And he did give lectures in Neoplatonic philosophy, um, which were attended in university. And he had Christian students and admirers. That is true. Uh, the famous Pico de, de uh, Mirandola was a student of his. Uh, and Christian Kabbalists and all that kind of stuff. That is true. And I know ne- I've never quite understood why, but I can, I can sort of guess. He had big fights with our hero. Uh, because, you know, one's coming from a uh, Torah, you know, Torah mono point of view. The other guy's just coming from a very yekesh, yeshivish, uh, you know, cultural uh, point of view. And so it is, I could hear it would be possible that, you know, uh, Elio de Medigo, who's famous, um, you know, he was the one that they, they got confused. Which is also interesting that you have a Jewish rabbi uh, in a super Catholic country that people would respect because of their secular knowledge. Well, we saw that last week with Elio Bucker. You had a couple of people like that. And um, I've never, we don't, as far as I'm aware, we don't know the exact nature of the machlokas between him and the Rav. Although, like I said, before, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure it out. They would not be comfortable around each other. And there are all kind of rumors and things like this, you know, that some people wanted to kill him because he, because he uh, was a referee at a debate, and he, you know, whoever, whichever side he said was right, and the other side wanted to kill him. It's all kind of mices, but uh, it doesn't fit the, the the guy we're talking about tonight. The Mari Mintz was a old school, very learned, <coughs> very lumdish type of yekesh. Rabbi, I shouldn't use the word yekesh. I mean, it's before that invented. Old German, old Ashkenaz, you know, from the old, old school, who was a Marbitz Torah established by a very successful yeshiva in a new environment in Italy. But it was a German transplant. I guess the language of Yiddish. The style was Ashkenaz. The, the postcom that he quotes are usually Ashkenaz. Uh, okay, so what? Uh, so don't think that Italian Jewry is so Italian. Uh, Italian Jewry had a very heavy dose of the uh, German and even the French stuff in them. Anyway, I just wanted to mention that point. So you see, he had his share of fights, and I don't know them all. You know, somebody has to be a specialist. I'm very serious to know all the little machlokes that he had with people, because he did. But that's part of life. I'll tell you one last one, which had trouble him and his son. Uh, in fact, one of the reasons his son had to leave Padua was because they had a fight with a richy rich guy. A guy donated a purse. It's famous. Uh, the, the, what do you call it? Yosef Kara talks about it in the Avkas Rocha. A richy rich guy gave a, a parochus, wanted to give a parochus for the shul. And I've dealt with this myself. That, you know, somebody gives a parochus to the shul, they, they want the name of their family on it, and this and that and the other. But it had like a bolate, you know. It had pictures, images that stuck out. And so he had issues with it from the point of view of uh, Losasa, you know, like a Vodazara or or images, and our hero answered it, and the richy rich guy sort of bided his time. When the when the old man died, he forced the son, uh, and the son didn't want to take it. And then the old man, the richy rich guy, kicked the son out, you know, pushed the son out of the city. So it just goes to show you that you know dynamics don't change, and if you're rich, they think you really know. Since he had the may, he figured he has the day up, and 
even though the Godel Ador says you shouldn't do it, and it's not a tribute to your family, it's, it's actually a negative for the Nishamas if, if you're commemorating them on a parochus, in a way it's halakhically usher, that kind of sensibility this rich Chum couldn't get. You know, he said he wanted his way, and with his name on it, and his family name on it, anybody stands his way will get run over. So certain things in life don't change. Anyway, I want to conclude and thank Ari Esti Lechman for uh, sponsoring tonight. As I said before, I hope all their wishes for Shiloh Shlema for Cheskel and for myself will come true. I extend a shout to my very good friend Cheskel Lechman in Florida. I hope we shall have Rufuas Shlemos. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.